Welcome to the Fibery Goodness Tiny Studio Magazine podcast, Tiny Talks, with your hosts Arlene Thayer, yoga teacher, spinner, knitter extraordinaire, and all-round wise person, and myself, Susie Brown, aka Woolwich, passionate fibre artist and owner-publisher of indie magazine, Tiny Studio Creative Life. Join us as we chat about all the behind the scenes at the magazine, creative projects we're working on, life and fibre hacks, and just like in our magazine content, ways to boost your creativity and maximise your moments of fibre art inspiration. Welcome everybody to another episode of Fibery Tiny Talks from Fibery Goodness Tiny Studio. My name is Arlene Thayer. I'm the co-host of this show along with my partner in crime, Susie Brown, who is the publisher and editor-in-chief for Tiny Studio. Hi, Susie. Good morning. Good afternoon. I'm not sure what time of day it is anymore. <laughs> well, we're not either because we just went through daylight savings here. And yeah. for those of you who don't know, I'm in Pennsylvania and Susie's all the way on the other side of the world in New Zealand. So coordinating time is always interesting for the two of us anyway. Yeah, it totally is. And then you're like in the middle of winter and I'm having my summer and vice versa. It gets confusing, but it's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like that partner in crimes, by the way. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) So tonight's topic, I hope you'll find it interesting. Tonight is about fiber preparation tools. It's a a tool talk tonight. And we're going to take you through a little bit of history with some interesting anecdotes along the way. And also, we're going to talk about the modern application for these tools. And I'm just going to come out of the gate and say they're not exactly sure when people started wearing clothes, but they see fragments of clothing going back 50,000, well, more than 50,000 years. Uh, I guess it's about 52,000 years um, in France with the Neanderthal people. So clothing goes back a long way, which means that fiber preparation goes back about the same amount. Um, around 8,000 BC is where they're documenting flax cultivation. And actually, that's where we're going to start tonight. Uh, We're going to start and talk a little bit about flax production and the tools used there. Um, The main tool is the, that we we see, uh, the ancient spiky looking hackles. Um... But there's some f- some interesting things about flax production that I did want to share. And one is that, um, well, for those of you who haven't looked into this before, you know, flax is a plant fiber, comes from the flax plant. Uh, it's a many-staged process to get to the thread. The hackle is a bed of nails that's used to comb the flax fibers and then the fiber bundle is flipped over the teeth and pulled through, like combing your hair. So a flax dresser who could gain the largest amount of spinnable fiber from a crop of flax was a very desirable, highly paid position in those times. It would have been quite a good job to do. I know over the years there's been various um, jobs around fibre production and preparation that have not been fun or or nice jobs at all to do, but I would imagine that flax combing would have actually been quite a, a pleasant activity. Even though the hackles, even the modern hackles, 
look to me like some kind of medieval torture device. The pointy um, spines that kind of stick up and, you know, most people look at them and, and worry about injury. So that could have actually been one of the downsides of that job in early times before our modern antibiotics and um, antiseptics were available. Uh, I don't know what the original hackles would have been made of, if they would have been metal or if they would have been wooden wooden spikes. Did your research find anything on uh, that? No, but it quite possibly, going back 8,000 years, quite possibly it was yeah. not metal at that point. Or maybe even bone. So another little piece of this that I wanted to share is um, I've been reading this book called The Highland Folkways, and it's about how things were done in Scotland um, early on, you know, 1500, 1600, 1700. Anyway, it was talking about the flax preparation and when you have to let the flax um, soak to rot, to soften it. So they would, you know, have these sort of pools, the redding, it was called redding, the redding pool. Well, the redding pools did not smell very good. So it was not uncommon to hide valuable items in there so that the tax collector did not see them because the tax collector would not go into the Reading pool to look around. It must have been very stinky yeah. and murky. Yeah, does it? <laughs> I hope they wrap their, their valuables well before they put them <laughs> into the Reading pool. <laughs> oh, boy, that's funny. And so it yeah. double use. We also wanted to talk about, you know, <laughs> flax uh, is grown in many places in the world and used in many places in the world. And New Zealand also, you have quite the history with flax production. We we do. We, we have a different type of flax in New Zealand than the one that's used uh, globally for making linen. Um, I'm not sure what the varieties are. It is a type of flax, but there are differences in it. It tends to produce um, a very strong fibre. And uh, the traditional way of preparing it, and I'm not an expert on this, but the traditional way of preparing it uh, was basically the, the flax leaves are cut and stripped and the, uh, the, the pulp on top of the fibres that run down the centre of the flax, is scraped off with a muscle shell. And it's quite physical work. You sort of lay it down and literally scrape away at the at the pulp on the leaf and reveal the fibre underneath it, which is called mukka. And then that goes through a whole process as well to prepare it for weaving. I remember a few years ago we went to visit a museum that's not far from here that specialises in... Uh, the 18th century, preserving the 18th century. And uh, when we went into the textile production section, the docent was telling us that, you know, flax was grown and um, that it would take a year from the time the flax was grown till there was a shirt on the other end of that. Between growing, production, spinning, then the thread is taken to a weaver. They, it wasn't necessarily woven at home. It was taken to a weaver to make the cloth, and then the cloth was made into a shirt. So if you were an oldest child, you would get that shirt, and then it would go on down from there. But it was very slow going to get from plant to garment. 
it's no wonder people valued their clothing very highly and and also you know adapted their clothing as styles changed they didn't go out and buy something new right they'd make adaptions and adaptations to their clothes and to fit the latest styles rather than actually create something entirely new and hand-me-downs was a normal thing so I guess stuff was made to last. From a modern well. perspective, though, you've taken the hackle and found a very nice modern application. You ha- I know you have a course that you actually offer uh, on using the hackle mm-hmm. uh, because it's excellent for color placement with dyed fiber. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I use the, the wool. It's a wool blending hackle that I use. It's, I use the, the two pitch Muddercraft hackle. And, um, I use it mostly for blending fibers. I don't use it particularly for fiber preparation from the fleece, although you can with, with a set of combs as well. Um, but I use it to actually create, um, color designs. And I use a template system to make a pattern so that I can get repeating colors through through my yarn in in a really sort of predictable way and i've got I've got a uh, a free workshop which includes a, a handbook downloadable handbook and a video on the website at fibrygoodness.com. And that's available if anyone's interested in learning how to use a hackle, what what it's really good for, and also the the system for creating repeatable um, colorways with it. And one of the wonderful things about the modern hackles um, is that they give you a, a fiber preparation that is just absolutely beautiful to spin. It opens up the fibers really nicely, but it still keeps them organized and straight and sort of running parallel to each other. So you can make a beautiful worsted yarn when you spin from that. And I kind of I tend to call it magical fairy fibers because it just really comes off the hackle so beautifully. And it's amazing to me the contrast between these sort of sharp tines that look like, you know, something painful and this incredibly soft buttery fibre that comes off it as a preparation. So that's probably not the most uh, traditional use of the hackle in terms of fibre preparation, but for me it's like a, a final step before I spin. And um, and so that's how I use it. Some people use the modern hackle also for preparing from raw. If you've got a hackle and a set of combs, you can take your raw fleece and load it onto the hackle and comb it off, and it also gives you a nice preparation. So combs are another ancient tool as well. They, how, how far do they go back? Well, Did you get any if stats? You, if you're looking at, again, you have to look at the fiber that they're used with. Um, the combs, well, first let's talk about cotton real quick, because cotton kind of, cotton kind of comes in next and cotton, uh, they're not entirely sure about when it was domesticated. Um, they know that it was being used around 5,000 BC and they know that it got into Europe through the Muslim conquest and eventually it spread into Northern Italy in the 12th century. But the tools for cotton were um, combs, bows, hand spindles, and and primitive looms. So that's where we start seeing the the combs coming in. Um, So that would be about 5,000 BC. They would have had to have something to comb the cotton with. Mm. 
Tell me about the bows. Oh, the bows are interesting. They that comes out of India. Um, they see these in the second century, and it's like a bow instrument um, where they vibrate the string, and that mm-hmm. loosens the texture of the fiber. So, so it opened yeah. it right up. So it would make it turn it into a sort of a cloud. Was that with wool or was that cotton. with cotton? Because it comes out of India. Right. Because I've seen something recently. Um, it's a traditional thing. I think somebody made a, a film that I saw online. And it was this woman sitting in a circle holding sticks. And they had the washed fleece in the middle of the circle. And they're sitting there hitting the, the fleece. They're quite hard, sort of flicking it around with these sticks. And, you know, they did this for a little while, and you could actually see that the fibres were just opened up and it just turned it into this beautiful fluffy cloud and also got all the VM out of it as well. And it's amazing what you can do mm-hmm, just hitting mm-hmm. something with a stick. Now, <laughs> it doesn't get much more simple with, with the tools. The use of cotton really became much greater with the spinning wheel coming into play. So the spinning wheel, and that's a whole topic unto itself, the history of the spinning wheel, but we're just kind of glossing over to hit a lot of subjects tonight. We're just glossing over these things. So the evidence of the first spinning wheel is about from the year 500 to 1000 coming out of India. And sometime in about the 1300s, 1350, they think, is when um, cotton really started to be produced as thread more widely because of using a spinning wheel to spin it. So the spinning wheel is a big step forward with cotton, which you need high twist, fast speed, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess um, flax was also spun um, on with a spindle as well early on. And I think cotton is harder to spin with a spindle, a drop spindle at least. Um, other people that are better at it than me might, might disagree. <laughs> but certainly, um, yeah, moving on to the, the spinning wheel, I think that, must, that was a tool that I'm sure opened up a whole lot of possibilities of what fibres could be prepared and spun efficiently as well also cotton was found in so many places all over the world you know it Mm. found in the you know americas uh certainly in egypt india um many places and what they they see is very similar technology developed to utilize the material so this brings us to the next step which is on to wool which started out being combed much like the same idea of combing yeah. the other fibers. And the, the predates the carding by about a thousand years. That's interesting because you'd think carding would have come before because combing. Because the combs were easier to manufacture. The, the carders yeah, required all those little tiny metal teeth. But the mm. combs could be manufactured more easily. So that that is why they think that it came you know, it came to rise more quickly. Uh, they could make those combs mm. out of wood, bone, and still be serviceable. And mm. they, the older combs still look like the flax hackles. Yeah, that makes sense. 
limited by what they could produce them from, I would have And then, of course, we get into the crazy business of the Wolcomers. <laughs> they were very, very powerful guilds, the Wolcomers guilds. When you think about, you know, the, the local economies that were incredibly reliant on wool production um, and, and their, um, um, what's it called, local economy, and also for trading elsewhere, being able to produce wool, um, it was a very lucrative business. Yes. So what has been documented is that in a lot of Europe, they were journeymen and they were kind of like a law unto themselves. Um, it wasn't highly regulated, <laughs> let's just say. And also there was this whole setup of how they would work together and warm the combs so that they would slide mm -hmm. through the, the oily wool very easily. <clears throat> and this was also gave uh, rise to the term sliver because that was a rope that they would produce. Oh, that's where we hear that term sliver today. That's where that comes from. Yeah. Um, in rural areas in Scotland, for example, the women would each hold a comb in a, in a hand, in each hand, kind of like carters. And I've seen you do that, too, with mm -hmm. the mini wool combs. Talk about that in a second. Yeah. Um, they had a patron saint. Of all things, their patron saint was Bishop Blaise around the, Blaise. <laughs> around the year 300. And he had no connection with textiles, but the legend was that he met his death by having his flesh torn with iron combs, similar to yeah. the wool combers. <laughs> and there was even a festival. There was a festival every seven years to commemorate him. It started in 1769, or, or maybe around 1750, and it continued for about 75 years. And it was a colorful pro procession on horseback uh, that there was a lot of wool being carried. Some of it died, some of it not. There were wool staplers, spinners, sorters, like everybody in the production, wool production world would come out and they would wear these wigs made out of combed wool. That had to be a sight. So anyway, I can't think of another tool that has a patron saint. Um, I can't even imagine how, I mean, he was killed by the, the wall cone, supposedly. And then they celebrate him as the patron saint of the wall cones. I haven't quite figured out how that connects up, apart from the fact that there is a connection there. It's, it's just not it's a particularly flimsy. positive connection. <laughs> it was an excuse for a party. Let's get down to it, right? I think so. Yeah, maybe he wasn't. I mean, he, I assume he was a good person to have been made a patron saint. So I guess we need to do a bit more research yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, There's so a story there. there. There's a story somewhere. There. So the yeah. combing industry, of course, like so many, died off when they were able to produce a mechanized device. That was in about 1850. But in modern times, again, we have a nice application. They're also excellent for blending. And I know you've done a lot. You love your mini combs. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we really have quite a renaissance of handcrafting, probably really particularly strongly since about the 1970s, I think. It became very um, popular to, to do the hand handmade clothing and handmade items. And so hand combs, uh, they're a really popular tool with a lot of spinners because they're portable, they're easy to use. There's lots of different types you can get. There are, you know, the really big combs that I find quite terrifying, actually, are the English combs. And those are the ones that you literally bolt one of them to the table because they're very large. And they often have, you know, four or five rows of very long, very sharp tines. And then you hold the other one in two hands and swipe it through the loaded fibre on the other comb, backwards and forwards, and you do need to hold it with two hands. It's not a a one-handed tool. Um, So it looks quite brutal, but it's incredibly efficient. And if you think back to, I think even the the Vikings were particularly interested in wool production because that was what they made their sails from for their ships. So, you know, they had to produce quite a lot of prepared wool. So these combs were big and efficient, um, they're not as popular today because they are quite brutal and and difficult to store and sharp and they they work very well for the very long locks as well um Leicester and so on longer coarser fibers because with the four tines it creates quite a, a width so if your lock is too short it doesn't really come out much past the end of the comb because they're so big so we also have, you know, hand combs that you hold literally one in each hand and comb the wool backwards and forwards between them to prepare it for spinning. And like the hackle, you get a really beautiful preparation from that for worsted spinning. And then um, you can also use them for blending. And I tend to use them for blending colours, but you can also blend different types of fibres. And I think one of the big differences between now and, you know, a few hundred years ago is we actually have a huge range of fibres available to us to blend or to use, you know, on their own. But, you know, we can we can buy fibre from the other side of the world and have it shipped over wherever you are. Um, so we have access to a really wide range of fibres. And I think, you know, even during the Industrial Revolution, they didn't have quite as many choices as we do now. Although, of course, there has been silk coming from Asia for centuries uh, there's been um, cashmere, for example, for a very long time. Um, and in, in the UK, there are so many different sheep varieties as well. Um, so, that, But I think in general, our choices are we can even add nylon in to make socks and that kind of thing that, that lasts really well. So the, the blending combs now, I think, have a much wider use than they would have a few hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And just to back up a little bit, when we're talking about combing, again, we're talking about things that, like combing your hair, that straighten all the fibers out so they line up, mm-hmm. which is not going to be the case as we get ready to talk about carding. Yeah, yeah. Combing and, and hackles produce um, a, what they call a combed top, which is fiber that's all... The staples are all the same length. For both hackle and combs, you need to be blending fibres that are all the same length staples. Otherwise, they separate out um, as as you're 
dizzing or taking them off the tool. Um, and so all those fibres lay parallel to each other and they're very organised and they produce a very smooth, compact yarn. When you get into carding, you're going to start getting a, a more jumbled, lofty preparation that spins into a, a different kind of yarn, into a, a, wool, a woolen yarn, which has different properties. We, we can come so back to that. So if you're um, we talk a bit making more about a textured yarn, some type of, for lack of a better word, art yarn, are you... Yeah. Always looking for carded preparation or not necessarily? No, not always. It depends on the type of yarn. If I wanted to do something that was like super textured, I probably wouldn't use a tool at all to prepare it. I'd spin straight from the lock, so it would just be washed. That gives me the most texture. If I wanted something that's lofty and a little bit fuzzy um, and that has you know lots of body to it, then I'd go for something carded. And if I'm wanting something with lots of definitions, so perhaps I'm doing you know, three or four different plies, like a cable ply that I want to see each single really defined in that, then I'd go for something that's combed or worsted. So it really, but the preparation you start with is what's going to determine the yarn that you get. And it's that, even though we're talking about tools tonight, it's perfectly fine to not use any at all as a spinner. You can spin some wonderfully textured yarns straight from the straight from you know washed fleece without doing anything oh and we did not talk about the picker oh yeah that's a terrible and i i did not do any research on the picker um i'm not sure that i would have found anything um clearly it's you know coming out of the same time when they're able to put nails in boards but if you want yeah. a big texture in your yarn, just picking it uh, is fantastic. Mm. It's interesting. In New Zealand here, we really don't have any pickers. It's not a tool that I was familiar with um, before I went to Europe. And I think that's possibly because most of our hand-spinning fibres are very fine merinos and polworths. Um and those are not fibres you want to put through a picker because they tend to get broken easily. A picker is a thing where there's like two surfaces, both of them have these lethal-looking nails sticking up out of them, and you and they swipe past each other. And with every swipe, they open up the fibre that's in between. So you can have some sort of clump of like Lester long locks, for example, put them through the picker and they come out the other end all sort of opened up into a cloud. It does make them much easier to, to manage if you don't want them in lock form. Um, so they're pretty brutal looking pieces of equipment and uh, they don't work well at all with fine fibres. Our packer would not be great to put through, but certainly for the, you know, the long locks and the long walls, um, they're super efficient for opening up fibres. I don't, I also don't know where they originated from. Well, you need a leather apron to go along with it. So somewhere that where they could <laughs> produce a nice yeah. protective garment. All right. That brings us yeah. for, in our history lesson. Now we're moving on to carters officially, uh, which are appear on the scene um, late in the 13th century. The first recorded um, documented use of it is in France. Uh, they're used in pairs. Um, the name 
is presumed to be connected to the Latin word for thistle. They thought that perhaps mm -hmm. it came from using thistles, but in modern experiments, they do not find that to be successful. So they think it was just, you know, kind of inspired by that. Um, an improvement with the hand carters along the way were sort of carting benches where they could support one of the cards. And you can see this is all building up to producing a drum carter eventually. Yeah. It all involves two surfaces of fine tines. Like the picker would be nails, two surfaces of nails. The drum carter is two surfaces of fine tines that swipe past each other and open up the fibres. It's all it's designed to do is to open up the fibres. I find using hand carters really frustrating. The combs aren't so bad, but I do not like using hand carters. A drum carter is totally the way I to think, go. <laughs> I think the um, I think in terms of ease of use, I think the combs are actually the easiest tool to learn after the hackle. The hackle is just a piece of cake. There's nothing difficult about using a hackle at all. You just layer stuff on and then draft it off. It takes a little bit of practice with the diz to draft it off, but most people get that within half an hour and they're, and they're away. The combs, you're moving between one comb and the other. Um, the hand cards, the skill that they require is just um, making sure that you're having the, the cards facing the correct way because the, the tines that come out of them point in, in, in a direction and so you need to make sure that they're pointing in the correct direction to actually transfer the fiber from one to the other. Uh, I didn't really start using hand cards until Muddercraft produced their hand cards and so I started playing with those and uh, I actually really like them now. It took me a little while to, and I did a, I did a, a workshop with um, Sue McNiven from the UK and she showed us how to use the hand cards and make good roll eggs. And that really helped. Getting a little hands-on demonstration with someone like that was actually really helpful. And the only trick then was just transferring it from one card to the other. And honestly, once you get the hang of that, it's actually quite fun. And I'm, and I'm making more stuff with my hand cards than I thought hmm. I would. Uh, and particularly little... Um, there's the roll egg, which is the traditional hand card production, and that's actually more like a sort of a long cloud. It's not a roll. It's like a long cloud of, of fibre, and it comes out like a sort of sausage. And then there's the, the puni, which is more like what you would make with cotton and very fine fibres, which is rolled around a stick, and that's much smaller. And I've been using my hand cards for both those preparations and I've been really enjoying spinning them. So um, I, I've been pleasantly surprised. I thought I was drum carter all the way. But um, the hand cards, they're, they're fun to use. Um, the drum carter, of course, is much more efficient and it will give you a big bat in a very short amount of time. So you can you can prepare, you know, uh, 40, four ounces of, of fibre in about 20 minutes. You've got a bat. And the way they work is that you've got two drums on a drum cutter. You've got the large drum that all the fibre ends up on when you when it's processed, and then you've got the small drum, which is called the liquor in. So you feed your fibre in through the liquor in, and as it passes by the big drum, the big drum picks up the fibre off the liquor in 
and opens it up and spreads it around the big drum. And the key here is that they're both turning at different speeds. So there's a, a, a particular ratio where the big drum, like on the Mudgecraft card, it's an eight to one ratio. So the big drum goes around eight times for every one turn of the liquor in. So the big drum's going much faster, which means that it picks it up at one point and then carries it around the drum. And as it does that, it opens it out and smooths it out. So that's a um, super efficient way of carding. It does tend to smooth out the fibre more than hand cards. With the hand cards, you really get it quite lofty and fluffy. With the drum carder, it sort of tends to smooth out the fibres and get them all running in one direction a lot more than if you're using hand cards. Uh, you can loft it up a little bit more if you don't. I think Judith McKenzie does this. If you feed the fibres in sideways to the drum rather than from the tip or the butt end um, lengthwise, you sort of hold them sideways onto the, to the, load them sideways onto the liquor in and that kind of opens them up and spreads them out sideways and it makes a slightly different, more uh, lofty bag. And then but in between we have the blending mm, board. Yeah, the, the blending board's interesting. It's something that people often say, should I get a blending board or a drum card? But I, I kind of see them as being very different tools that produce very different types of preparations. To me, the drum carder is like the cones. You can use them to blend and make a preparation to spin from. The blending board is more like the hackle in that you can actually use the blending board to organise your colours in a different way. You can still blend things on a blending board by layering them on and blending, taking them off and then putting them back on and taking them off and doing a few passes like that. So a blending board is basically the same material as a drum carter. It has a cloth with tines sticking up out of it, like a bed of nails. And you layer your fibre onto that press it down a little bit and then you draft it off and roll it around. A st Most people roll it around a stick and make small roll eggs that way. So it's not exactly blending your fibre unless you do a number of different passes. And, you know, that's quite time consuming compared to a drum cutter. But it's very good at giving you, like, for example, I could start layering on um, black fibre on the left-hand side of my blending board and gradually changing the colour and different stripes all the way across the other side and turning it into a black to white gradient and then taking off. So I have roll eggs that start white at one end and then black at the other end. So it gives you that chance to organise the colours, which you don't get with the um, drum carder quite as easily. The, the fibres can move as you're carding them because they get spread out like that. So that, to me, is the main difference. Well, the carters, in terms of a um, profession, that went away in the mid-1700s when they figured out a way to mechanize that as well. So, Industrial yep, revolution. Mo in a modern sense, though, uh, drum carters really have made a huge impact on um, textured spinning, creative yarns, um, through the ability to make what we call art bats, different types of art bats. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit, some different approaches to that? Well, you can use a, your drum carders in different ways. You can use them to make smooth bats for a, you know, a, what, what we would call a semi-worsted yarn, where it's, 
quite organised and the fibres generally running in one direction, although there can still be different length staples, which gives it a bit more texture. Um, then you can make an art bat. Now, an art bat is generally what's considered to be a very textured bat and often has lots of different things added into it. So it could have, you know, locks added in that have retained their form as locks or it could have bits of fabric or little pieces of yarn or it could have um, bits of sari silk all the different sorts of textures that you can add in that will make a really interesting art yarn you can put those into a bat and generally what you need to do with those is actually just load them onto the main drum you sort of put them on by hand on the main drum and then sort of cover them up with a little bit of normal smooth fibre so they don't get pulled out and, and opened up as they go through the carter. But that, if you've got a very textured bat, you will always get a very textured yarn out of it. And so you can sort of control that when you're making your your um, bat with your drum carter and how much texture you put in. If you want less texture, if you want it to be very smooth, then you can put it through the carter two or three times to take out the texture and smooth the bat out so it will give you a smooth um, preparation. But it's like we've always said, you know, preparation is everything. What you have in your prep is what you're going to get in your, in your final yard. Do you yard. ever hand pull roving off your drum carter? No. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I could be just lazy in that. <laughs> I, I see people do that, and it always looks beautiful. Um, but when I make a bat, I kind of feel like it's done. Is it's a bat? That's what I've made. It's a bat. And if I want to make it into a roving form, um, what I would do is actually um, either split it and then just you know little little bit of pre drafting just to smooth it, um, or I would just draft out the whole bat just take the whole bat and just sort of gently draft bit at a time just to sort of turn it into more of a sort of sausage shape if that's what I want to do with my colours on it um, but generally I make a bat and I just split it up if I want to make a hand pulled top then I'll do that with the hackle mm -hmm. okay. and really make it smooth that if way. If you're a beginning spinner just getting started where do you think is the right entry point for the tools? You've got a spinning wheel, but you want to start getting into yeah. tools, fiber prep tools. Lots of people ask that question. Um, often the answer is hand cards because they're accessible, they're relatively cheap, and there are a lot of them about. And the reason there's a lot of them about is people often buy them and then don't use them and then they sell them. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that, that would be... Um, probably not the best place to start. I would say think about what yarns you want to make, the yarn that you're as aspiring to make. If it's a very smooth sort of worsted yarn that looks like something that's that you could buy in a yarn store but, you know, with your own uniqueness about it, then I would say go for combs. I love my combs. They're easy to learn to use. Um, the only thing to be aware of with hand combing is that you do get waste from that, even if you're hand combing um, a commercial top that's already combed, um, you'll still get waste from that. And sometimes people can be a little bit horrified that they've combed up this fibre and it's beautiful, but from this fleece they've got like 20% of its waste. So it depends a lot on the fleece, uh, but that, that is something to be aware of with combs. Um, 
So really, that, that would be the starting point. Think about what you want to make. If you want to make sort of fluffy, arty yarns, then hand cards would be the way to go. You can make some really artistic fibre preparations, even with hand cards. You can add in bits of bits of uh, different fibres, bits of yarn, make mini bats on them. Um, the one I don't recommend that much is probably not my favourite, is the blending board. I know a lot of people do love them and they can be really fun to use, but for myself, I find it's the one I use the least. Um, I, I, I prefer to use the hand cards. I think they're easier to use and I can still make little mini bats if I want to and roll mm-hmm. eggs and so on with those. Um, some people start off with, you know, dog brushes as hand cards, a couple of those, or, you know, even a dog comb. Um, you can find cheap alternatives. To, and then you know, to let's say you tools. don't have tools, you're not going to invest in tools, and you're buying commercial top and you're buying commercial roving. Yep. How do you improve that when you go to spin it? What do you do when you take it out of the package? You're just separating it, or is there more to it than that? It depends on what you want to spin. If you're wanting to spin a big bulky yarn, then I I don't separate. I just spin it straight out of the out of the out of the bag. Undo the braid, start spinning on the roving. Um, if you wanted to do off oh, on the roving, yeah, yeah, exactly, yep. And I tend to sort of work across the top. It depends a little bit on the colours and how you want to use the colours. Sometimes, if you're buying sort of indie dyed uh, commercial top, uh, it can arrive somewhat compacted sometimes the dyeing process will leave it feeling a little compacted and it won't draft well I think the best thing you can do with that if you don't have any tools is to split it and just tease it out sideways don't don't pre-draft it because it'll end up with sort of lumps and chunks in it but tease it out sideways to open it up Um, if you have a tool then that's the time to use it if you wanted to keep it for your smooth worsted yarn then you'd put it through your hackle or through your combs to open it up and the hackle is amazing for opening up that kind of fiber it really gives it a whole new life um or you could put it through a drum carter if you wanted to have a more sort of lofty softer preparation as well so um that is probably the, the main thing you'd have to worry about when you're using commercial top pre you know pre-dyed commercial top is that it can arrive a little bit compacted or if it's been sitting in your stash for a while and you know it just gets a little bit felted on the mm-hmm. outside just from the movement and so on then um just open up with your fingers or use a tool i i love so tools. if you do <laughs> have some fiber in your stash that has gotten a little felty then what do you do mm. Same, same thing, just try and open it up a little bit. My my first go-to with that, though, is the hackle. It's just wonderful for opening up fibre. And it, it doesn't have to change the colour placement. Um, you know, you might you might have bought a pan-painted top and it's got like three or four colours through it. Um, you can literally just do one colour at a time on the hackle. So you're kind of splitting up the colours and then you can reorganise them how you like. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to blend those colours together, but certainly just, you know, one pass over the hackle and it turns it into the magical fairy fiber. <laughs> so that in awesome, terms of resources, awesome we've got the hackle course through Fibery Goodness. 
And I know on the yep. Woolwench YouTube channel, there's carding and combing videos there too. There are, yep. Yeah, yeah. We've also got on the Fibre Goodness Courses page, we've also got a carding course, which has a couple of hours of video, and that includes um, blending board, drum carder, and hand cards. And there's and a workbook with that. And there's also um, Hackles and Combs course, which is also video content plus workbook. So those are there. But there is heaps of um, free stuff on the Woolwench Fibre Goodness YouTube channel. Um, lots of videos. And I usually check in comments there if anyone has questions as well. Excellent. Well, this has been wonderful. I've learned so many things talking to you about this, little tips and tricks that I hadn't thought of before. And as we're... <laughs> and and I've, le I've learned more about St. Blaise. I need to I go know, find I out know. about that story now. Uh, so as we're recording this, we're a few days away from the launch event on the print version of Tiny Studio. Yeah. Yes. That's it's pretty exciting. I think by the time this podcast's out, the subscriptions will be open on the website. So I'm just building up to that at the moment. It's quite exciting, quite stressful. But, you know, every time I pick up the, the sample copies that I've got and hold them in my hands, it just reaffirms for me that I, I need to share this in print. It really, it's like holding inspiration in your hands when you pick it up. The The content from our contributors is just so gorgeous so i'm i'm hopeful that uh, that our launch by now will have gone well <laughs> well everybody better get out of my way cuz i'm going to be the first subscriber i'm going to be subscriber <laughs> 001 there is such a thing it's going to have your there name you go. <laughs> all right everybody we will be back uh in a couple of weeks with some more fiber talk for you Thanks yeah. for joining us, everyone. Thanks, Thanks Susie. Take care.